0: Well hello! Welcome to Challenger Approaching, a podcast about the history behind every major franchise featured in the Smash Bros. series. I'm your host, freelance games journalist and author Ben Bertoli. Just as with the first episode, which you should definitely listen to if you haven't, I'm going to be hitting on all the key moments and interesting aspects behind a beloved franchise, or in this special case, two beloved franchises. I may skip over a few boring details, but rest assured that you'll be getting all the juiciest bits of history and trivia. During each episode, I'll also be sitting down with a guest to discuss a game or a part of the franchise that they remember fondly or find intriguing. And just a quick warning that I'm absolutely terrible at pronouncing Japanese words and names. I'll try my best, but I'll let me go ahead and apologize in advance for that. For our second episode, we'll be focusing on some unlikely retro contenders. Despite their brief popularity, they both left a strange, lasting impression on players and collectors the world over. It's a two-for-one deal, and it's time to get a little weird with Duck Hunt and Rob. Though the NES game Duck Hunt, which officially launched in Japan in 1984, does predate Rob the Robot by an entire year, the actual concept of Duck Hunt is much older. In fact, the duck half of the Duck Hunt duo is arguably the oldest fighter on the Smash roster, beating out classic characters like Mr. Game & Watch and Pac-Man by several years. But how did the original Duck Hunt come into being? Surprisingly, it all started with bowling. As the 1950s gave way to the 1960s, Americans slowly started to lose interest in the sport of bowling. The exact opposite was true in Japan. Bowling was a fresh new activity that could be played by young and old, and the citizens of Japan couldn't get enough. The Japanese bowling boom of the 1960s saw the construction of over 120,000 bowling lanes in Japan's most populous areas. The most popular spot, the Tokyo Bowling Center, consisted of multiple bowling alleys and featured a total of 512 lanes in a single building. By the time 1970 rolled around, the Japanese bowling fad was fading fast. The sport had been replaced by a new Japanese venture where friends sang along to popular music and closed off rooms. Yep, it was karaoke that killed bowling. Most bowling center owners decided to cut their losses and shut down their lanes for good. There just wasn't any money in bowling anymore. It's hard to convert a bowling alley into just about anything else, so most of the bowling centers were simply abandoned, left to rot inside their shiny hardwood tombs. It was this abandoned extra space that attracted the eye of Nintendo president Hiroshi Yamauchi in 1971. Always trying to predict the next big craze, Yamauchi was certain the deserted bowling alleys could be transformed into virtual shooting ranges for Nintendo's newest invention, the Optoelectric Gun SP. Yamauchi had read about shooting tournaments where contestants fired, not at ducks, but at clay targets flung into the air by devices known as traps, and he was intrigued by the simplicity and the skill involved. Yamauchi tasked legendary Nintendo designer Gunpei Yokoi, a man who would go on to invent the Game & Watch and the Game Boy, with implementing this new laser clay shooting system. By early 1973, Yokoi and his team had worked out all the kinks allowing targets to be shot by beams using various projectors and reflections. Nintendo launched their new system to immediate success. The laser clay shooting system was such a hit that Yamauchi made the decision to establish a new Nintendo subsidiary, dubbed Nintendo Leisure System. This new branch would focus solely on the laser clay maintenance and taking on the demanding number of orders for the new system. Just as Nintendo seemed to be on an unstoppable rise to the top of the Japanese entertainment industry, everything fell apart. In October of 1973, Japan and many other countries experienced an enormous setback that would come to be known as the first oil shock. This oil crisis sent the Japanese economy into a downward spiral, forcing its largest companies to brace for an inevitable recession. As a result, every order for the laser clay shooting system currently in place was canceled and Nintendo found itself 5 billion yen in debt, on the verge of bankruptcy. It would take seven years for the company to get back on its feet. Though Nintendo was struggling during those years, the public's interest in light guns was still rock solid. Maintaining the bowling alley-sized ranges was much too costly, so in 1974, Yamauchi redesigned the laser clay system into a miniature version that could be stationed in arcades. After mediocre sales, the mini version was redesigned even further to fit within a normal arcade cabinet, and Nintendo launched a new gunslinging title called Wild Gunman. Outside the arcade scene, Nintendo began to promote a new Beam Gun series, which brought the same point-and-shoot projector experience into players' homes. This setup was also designed by Gunpei Yokoi, with help from sharp engineer Masayuki Umara. One of the first entries in the new series was, you guessed it, Duck Hunt. The game hit Japanese store shelves in
1: 1976
0: to modest success. Almost 10 years later, in 1984, Nintendo launched a new beam gun accessory for their recent home console, the Famicom. The gun was released alongside a port of their successful Wild Gunman arcade entry, and months later, Duck Hunt made its official console debut. Loads of players remember the beam gun, known as the NES Zapper outside of Japan, but not many really know how it works. Players thought they were shooting at their TVs, but it was actually the other way around. When the trigger was pressed, the TV screen would flash black with white spots for the fleeting foul. This, in turn, would trigger the gun's photo sensors, allowing them to detect if the right pixels had shifted from dark to light. Pretty neat, huh? The Zapper, along with Duck Hunt, launched alongside the NES in North America in 1985. And went on to be included in the Action Set console bundle later on. Due to this bundle and the game's inclusion with the original Super Mario Bros. on a single cart, it's hard to find a Nintendo fan of the 80s who hasn't played or owned the title. And of course, along with Duck Hunt's ducks came the infamous Nameless Dog, who would laugh at players who missed their shots. His snickering face was soon a well-known point of aggravation for those with less than stellar aim. In Super Smash Bros. 4 and Super Smash Bros. Ultimate, the character Duck Hunt isn't just a reference to that single game, but rather the NES Light Gun series as a whole. In their side special, the Duck Hunt duo is seen tossing a clay pigeon, a nod to the original laser clay shooting system, and a similar mode within the Duck Hunt game. Five pixelated Wild West Outlaws from Wild Gunmen spring into action when players initiate the down special. A soda can from the shooting game Hogan's Alley, another NES launch title, pops into existence at the tap of the B button. The can was featured in a mode known as trick shooting, which explains why pressing the B button after its appearance will make the can hop forward, as if shot by an unseen force. And of course, in Duck Hunt's epic Final Smash, enemies from both Wild Gunman and Hogan's Alley can be seen rattling off shots towards opposing players. The legacy of the NES Zapper has lived on through games like WarioWare and Splatoon, but the Duck Hunt character in Super Smash Bros. is truly the embodiment of everything goofy and memorable about Nintendo's iconic light gun. While the Zapper may have been a defining factor in the Nintendo Entertainment System's overall success in North America, It was a little gray robot that put the system in the limelight at launch here to talk about our favorite robo pal is founder of the video game history foundation frank cefaldi hello how's it going frank good (laughs) all right so what was rob the robot what when was he introduced and and why
1: uh so rob the robot um which stands rob stands for robotic operating buddy um rob I, I think we pronounce it, Rob. I don't know if there's ever... Yeah, yeah. actually, I can, I can say for sure. I saw a commercial from 1985. It is Rob. Uh, Rob the Robot was actually a peripheral uh, for Nintendo's uh, family computer and slightly later, the Nintendo Entertainment System. And uh, he wasn't quite a game controller, but he, he sort of hooked up to your NES uh, to sort of interact with the controller and the TV as your, well, robotic operating buddy and... Uh, he was uh, specifically made for two games that shipped, and he uh, he's sort of, it, it's, it's hard to describe without visuals, but he basically could pick up and place objects down depending on how the TV told him to operate, uh, and that would result in him maybe pressing a button on your controller or something to help
0: you out in a game. Did he come out in Japan as well?
1: Yeah, yeah, so he first came out uh, for the Famicom in July of 1985. Um, and we don't see the NES get introduced into America until a few months later, October of 85. Um, but he kind of became the mascot of the NES here in America. Um, so just sort of brief history of the NES here. Uh, so the Famicom came out in 83 in Japan. as a big hit like instantly the the best-selling console in Japan, although, you know, I don't know what the competition was, I guess the Sega SC3000 or whatever. And, (laughs) you know, it it was successful there, and of course Nintendo wanted to bring it here to America, but that wasn't really feasible because uh, of what we call the video game crash of the early 1980s. So, you know, it's 1983, and all these toy stores have just literally lost, like, millions of dollars. Uh, buying, you know, Atari and television and Caligo products uh, because the market, you know, got oversaturated and completely crashed and all these businesses went under and, you know, you started seeing piles of unsold inventory for, like, you know, a dollar sometimes for these brand-new games. Um, and so, you know, it, it sort of had this domino effect where if you're a company like Atari or Activision or whatever and you're trying to introduce a brand-new, like, $20, $30 game... Uh, And, you know, you put that out in the market and mom's buying your Christmas presents. What's she going to get, the $5 game or the $40 one, right? So market crashes, everything's terrible. Mm -hmm. No one wants to sell this family computer thing in America. So Nintendo sort of tries to play it a little bit differently. They're like, no, it's not quite a video game console like you remember. It's something a little different. So, you know, Nintendo sort of takes it on themselves to bring the Famicom over, you know, even without toy store support. They, they first try to do it by kind of ignoring the toy market and going for more of the high end, you know, electronics market. Uh, they try to introduce something called the advanced video system, which is, you know, kind of like, you know, imagine an NES, but, but a little sleeker. And uh, it came with like a a computer, a keyboard and a tape drive and stuff like that. And like even a music keyboard you could get to learn music. And, you know, it's it's not a video game system. It's sort of this high end, you know, video system that does all kinds of things. Um, They introduced that in January 85 at, at at a trade show to try to drum up interest. But none of the store owners are buying it. So they kind of go back to the drawing board. You don't hear anything from nintendo of america again about it until that uh june six months later at, at the other ces or were that happened twice a year back then And when they re-emerge in june they're now going after the toy market and they're, and they're still saying no it's not a video game it's an entertainment system it's the nintendo entertainment system and it's a toy and it comes with this toy robot and he plays with you and he moves around it's really cool and it's going to work out really great because it's 1985 and people really like robots right now there's Whole bunch of toy robots all over the place. uh, (laughs) Batteries not included came out. I don't know around now. I think. Oh, what was that other robot eighties movie? Short 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 circuit. Circuit. Short circuit. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, that's what I meant to say when I said uh, batteries not included. And and like Rob becomes sort of the mascot of this new product, the Nintendo Entertainment System. You know, you you go back to sort of press coverage of, of the event at the time. There's there's very very little, but all of it is sort of about the robot. And um, they end up releasing the NES in October that year, just in a, only in New York. They were sort of testing the market to make sure that you know before they invest all this money, you know, manufacturing a million of these things. Let's try New York to make sure it's going to work. And you know they plastered Rob everywhere. They uh, they had a launch party actually for the system in October uh, October 9th of eighty five. And uh, they gave out T-shirts with Rob on it. They gave out little pins with Rob. There was apparently a giant Rob in the middle of the thing that they'd like carved out of something (laughs) like, yeah, I don't know. It's probably destroyed now. (laughs) Um, But, you know, Rob was the NES mascot. And some would argue the sort of Trojan horse into getting uh, video games and toy stores again was sort of selling them uh, as this. Actually. Literally, there's if if you look at the newspaper ads from like '86 as they're as they're starting to roll out the system around the country, I think it was the ads and ads for Target, the store Target. They don't even call it the Nintendo Entertainment System. It's something like the the Video Robot System from Nintendo. Basically, <laughs> I, I think if you look back uh, from an historian's point of view, that's really all Rob was good for was was sort of tricking people into wanting a video game system again because. Ultimately, they only shipped two games at the same time that uh, the Rob supported. It was a Gyromite and Stack Up. And uh, neither one of them were, you know, amazing. Uh, In fact, Stack Up, you know, you didn't even need Rob. He was just, like, it it was... Stack Up was basically, like... Well, let me back up a second, sort of explain in general terms how Rob works. Um, So Rob's eyeballs... They're not really eyeballs, but they're the, the, the discs that, that are where humans would have eyes that are on sort of the face of Rob. Mm-hmm. Um, he doesn't have like pupils <laughs> or anything. They're, they're IR sensors that are sort of looking at your TV screen. And the TV screen would – I don't know if this is literally true, but it might like flash three times really fast, white. And Rob, the system, knows, oh, three flashes means turn right. And so basically – the, the game could talk to Rob and make him move the way it wants to, uh, but that's it. Rob can't talk back to the game. Uh, Rob can't do anything but move the way the TV tells him to. And so he can, um, he's got two hands, right? And, and the, the commands, I, I, I could be off on this, but the commands as I remember them are, he could uh, move left, he can move right, uh, and he has three different positions, you know, left, center, and right, I believe. And he can move his hands up and down. I believe it's two positions. And he can uh, he can move his hands together to grab, or he can separate them to let go of the accessories that you would have gotten either with him or with an additional game. And those accessories might be like like a spinning top. Like he could he he could make a top spin, and and he could sort of pick up the the spinning top and then drop it on this plate that that, that would then. Uh, press a button on the actual video game controller that you've put under him to tell the TV that Rob has successfully dropped this spinning top right here. And that's how he worked. And the games that he supported weren't all that compelling, I don't think. Uh, reports are conflicting. I've, I've heard from a Nintendo employee that there was one other game that they were looking at. I've, I read in a newspaper article from the time, and I don't believe this at all, that there were nine more Rob games in development. That can't be. There's no way they were making nine of them, and they're like, nah, let's just ship none of these. <laughs> yeah, and it was, you know, Nintendo was, you know, the roots of Nintendo, not the roots roots, like not going back to the 1800s or anything, but the roots of Nintendo at the time was as a toy company and they were always sort of playing with new toy ideas and you know Rob I think from a lot of Nintendo employee perspectives was just another toy they were working on it, it, they they got a little weirder I mean in 87 they actually mm. were trying to introduce a knitting machine for the Nintendo um, that you know it didn't happen they didn't come out with it they kept they kept playing with this idea of uh toys that connected to your nintendo the the um what was it called the power pad right that's another sort of toy uh that connects to the nintendo and it's like now you could stomp on
0: things <laughs> and was was rob's uh, interaction with the tv similar to the nes zapper the way that that works?
1: yeah it was actually so the the nes zapper uh had the same sort of ir sensor on on the front of it and it was looking at your tv for input so um you know, using that sensor, it would know, based on the screen flash and where it's pointed, uh, yes or no, you hit a duck, right? And it would... Um, uh-huh. But the, the difference between Rob and the Zapper is that the Zapper was actually talking to your Nintendo. You know, it was the Zapper that told the Nintendo hey, we hit a duck, and then the Nintendo would respond in the game by showing the duck dying, right? But Rob had no way of communicating with anything. Rob was just a toy that would move. Mm. And so the clunky way that Rob could talk to the Nintendo was literally like slotting your controller under him so that he would be forced to press the button on it.
0: <laughs> Make the hard way.
1: And he was dumb, and I don't mean that in the human sense, but you know what I mean? He wasn't he, he, he wasn't a, an accessory that, that uh, had any sophistication uh, to his programming or anything. It was a simple toy with some simple movements that the Nintendo could tell him to do. And actually, you know, I spoke to, I've spoken to a few people who were at Nintendo at the time, but Howard Phillips uh, in particular, um, I don't know if you read Nintendo Power. He was sort of the editor. Well, one of the editors there was him and Gail Tilden. Mm -hmm. But no, Howard Phillips, the guy in the bow tie, who was sort of the head of the game counselor group. He described to me that, you know, when he would sort of demonstrate the rob to people when they were doing their sort of mall tours in 85, that he would, he would often like, cover his eyes to show that like oh now he can't see so he's not doing anything and then take his hands away to be like and now it looks see this is proof that he's looking at your tv and responding and in fact stack up if i remember correctly really didn't do much except just tell rob to do stuff i don't think i think it was kind of i haven't played it since the 80s honestly stack up but if i remember right it was basically working on the honor system like it was up to you to know if you won or not you could easily just pretend like like the game would never know
0: (laughs) So why do you think Rob keeps popping up in Nintendo games? I mean, he's shown up in Super Smash Brothers, obviously, um, the WarioWare games. I think uh, the Rob in Star Fox 64 is a nod to him. Is it, is it just because he has that legacy of introducing the NES?
1: Uh, I can go earlier than that, too. He was, he made a cameo in Star Tropics in 90 or 91 or something like that. Oh, right. Why does it keep coming up? I think it's just because, at least in the United States... He was the mascot for the system. I mean, like I I don't think that the Rob was even on the market that long. I wanna say maybe three or four years you could get the thing. And you know, of course there were only two games for it. Why would they keep manufacturing the thing? But uh it's it it, it was the face of the Nintendo. I mean, like you you know, you got like the the fold out poster with the system and with the games and stuff and like there's Rob's face on the bottom of the thing, you know. You got you actually couldn't even buy the Nintendo for the first year or so, I think, uh, without Rob included. Like Rob was, you know, the face of the NES for better, uh, for better or worse. And uh, I think that, I suspect that Rob's inclusion and in stuff like Smash Brothers and Ware is probably Western influenced. I mean, the the Rob came out in Japan, but I don't think it was really synonymous with the Famicom. I think it was just you know, one of several accessories that you could optionally get, and not that many people did. Um, I think. I don't know. I don't actually know the sales numbers in Japan, but I think that the difference between here and there is drastic, right? Like I think the Rob was synonymous with the NES here and, and I suspect he's in Smash Brothers as a as a nod to Western Nintendo fans. But that's just speculation on my part. All right. Yeah, I mean that's Rob. You know, he was uh you know, he was an accessory that became synonymous with the Nintendo through sheer force of will and marketing I think people don't particularly fondly remember actually playing the rob games generally they're okay but you know you 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 learned really quickly that actually gyromites way easier if you just do it yourself than like make the robot do it um and the the game doesn't know the difference so you know, like my memory of playing Gyromite with my cousin is that I was Rob, you know, because like there's no reason to use the stupid robot. I could just do it for you. Um, and it made the game way easier. And, you know, we're kids, right? Why are we going to try to play the game as intended as, as opposed to try to, you know, game the system and make it as easy as we can? Even the Nintendo employees from the time that I've spoken to didn't think too highly of Rob. You know, they they, they joke about how slow he is and, and how awkward it is, you know, to to try to play with a thing. And I guess there was a joke going around the NOA office about um, selling a conversion kit to turn Rob into a lamp <laughs> because he had become functionally useless because there hadn't been a game since 1985.
0: And then when he sees the TV turn on, he turns on. Oh, yeah. It's <laughs> an amazing lamp. Oh, yes. Yeah,
1: a smart lamp. Yeah. Right.
0: <laughs> the first one.
1: It's it's so it's kind of curious that this thing that is kind of functionally useless and and
0: kind of a flop.
1: Yeah, not not all that fondly remembered in reality. Just sort of became this icon of the Nintendo. Yeah. And again, I think it's just I think Nintendo's marketing at the time was brilliant, and I think you know that Rob. I think Rob's continued not just existence but recognition. Uh, you know, is goes to show just how brilliant that marketing was.
0: Hey, Hey, it's time for bonus stage. This is the part of the show where I talk about interesting tidbits that didn't come up in the main story, but I still think you need to know about them. Extra tidbit number one. Both Duck Hunt and Rob should only be played on old-school CRT TV sets. Sure, you can set them up on your fancy 70-inch 4K HDTV, but the delay involved would make the games nearly unplayable. You can play Duck Hunt on the Wii U Virtual Console, but outside of its original NES launch, this is the only time Nintendo has officially re-released the game. Extra tip at number two. The game Hogan's Alley was named after a police and military training facility established between World War I and World War II, located at Camp Perry in the state of Ohio. After World War II, these facilities were shut down, but the name lived on for varying locations where simulated combat and crimes were practiced. In 1987, two years after the game's launch in North America, the FBI opened a new Hogan's Alley on a 10-acre plot of land near their headquarters in Virginia for training agents as well as the United States Marine Corps. Extra tidbit number three. In both Kirby's Dream Land 3 for the Super Nintendo and Pikmin 2 for the GameCube, players are tasked with tracking down and reassembling various parts of Rob. It seems he's prone to falling apart. Challenger Approaching is written, recorded, edited, and produced by me, Ben Bertoli, here in Indianapolis, Indiana. Our opening track was created by Chip2 composer Brandflakes. His music can be found on YouTube under the handle Brandflakes325. All the music samples used in this episode are the property of Nintendo. Special thanks to Frank Cifaldi of the Video Game History Foundation for coming on the show as our expert. You can follow Frank on Twitter at Frank Cifaldi, that's C I F A L D I, or at GameHistoryOrg. If you're interested in supporting the video game history foundation you should consider donating to their efforts at gamehistory.org donate every little bit helps if you have any comments or suggestions for the podcast or feel i left something out that's terribly important feel free to tweet at super or shoot me an email at heybertoli at gmail.com challenger approaching will return next week with a new gaming history lesson so be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or anywhere fine podcasts can be found. See you then!